All right, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 1. As I've mentioned in the past, our plan as we get into Deuteronomy is to go up until, basically right up until Christmas. And uh, you'll notice as you look at Deuteronomy, there's actually 34 chapters. It's a pretty decent sized book, Uh, similar to what we did with Psalms, but a little more strategic. We're not going to cover every part of Deuteronomy. That would take uh, a tremendous amount of time. And we might get kind of lost in the details if we did it that way as well. And so what we're going to do is we've selected 14 passages that I think adequately represent and tell the story of Deuteronomy. And so that's what you'll see over the next couple of months as we walk through Deuteronomy together. Today we're going to look at chapter 1, and I'm going to kind of summarize uh, the story leading up to chapter 1, and then I want to pull some, some, some practical lessons, some things that we can glean from this text that are applicable for us today as just as much as they were for the Israelites then. So when we get to Deuteronomy, this is the fifth book of the Bible. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. Uh, it completes what is a five-book series, really, or a five-part book, however you want to think of it, that is authored by Moses and often referred to as the books of Moses. Those first five books are Moses' recounting of the story of the people of Israel up until that point. And so Moses goes, I'm sure you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, begins with the creation account. And he follows the story of God's redemption all the way from creation and the fall and the flood, all the way to God chooses Abraham. And when God chooses Abraham, he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. He takes one man and says, you're going to become a great nation. Your descendants are going to be so numerous, they'll be like the stars in the sky. They'll be like the the grains of sand on the seashore. You won't be able to number them. You won't be able to count them. And thus begins God's commitment to his people that become later become known as the Israelites. Now, through Abraham, the, the genealogy of the Israelites uh, starts out pretty slow because Abraham's actually quite old after having heard that promise from God. He has to wait quite a significant amount of time before God begins to fill that, fulfill that promise to send him a son. And God sends him a son. He sends him Isaac, and Isaac uh, becomes the father of Jacob, and Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons who become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Of those 12 tribes, one of them, one of those brothers, of those 12 brothers, I should say, before they're actually tribes, of those 12 brothers, one of them is uh, not liked by his 11 brothers. His name is Joseph, and he's sold into slavery and eventually ends up in Egypt. And as he lives out his kind of crazy life, there's, this guy has incredible highs, incredible lows, God does just some really amazing things through him, but often through incredible difficulty. As he lives out his life in Egypt, God would ordain it so that Joseph actually becomes the second in command of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And during his his leadership as the second in command in Egypt, he prepares the, the nation of Egypt for what God revealed was going to be a famine in the land that they lived in. And so Joseph's put in charge of storing up all kinds of food and provisions for this coming famine. And then during that time of famine, 
You remember Joseph's 11 brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery. Those 11 brothers come down to Egypt because they're starving to death and they seek food for their family. And the brothers are reunited. And Pharaoh looks on Joseph's brothers with favor and he says, why don't you bring your whole family down from the land that they were living in, the promised land, and we'll take care of them here in Egypt. And that goes great for a little while. While Joseph is alive and while that Pharaoh is alive, the Israelites are doing well and they're growing and they're becoming very numerous there in Egypt. But generations pass and the Egyptians begin to look on the Israelites a little bit differently. And they begin to enslave them. And then uh, they, they become enslaved and stay that way for nearly 400 years in Egypt. And at the end of that 400-year period, God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses is sent to deliver the, the Israelites out of the Egyptians' hands and to take them back to the land that God had told Abraham would be his, the promised land. You probably are familiar with how that all takes place, but uh, suffice it to say that God delivers them through very miraculous means. He shows himself to be strong and to be powerful and to be the God who, who is the God of the Israelites. He shows them his favor. He delivers them out of the hand of the Egyptians, takes them into what really is a desert or wilderness land, in between Egypt and the promised land, and he guides them sovereignly to the promised land, and as they come to the doorstep of the promised land, something very unfortunate happens. This particular generation of the Israelites looks at the promised land, and as we're gonna, we're gonna see here in, in Deuteronomy chapter one, they send 12 spies representing their 12 tribes into the promised land, supposedly to map out the best route and to, to come back and report to the people of all the good things that they could expect. But instead, they come back and they spook everybody. They get the Israelites afraid and the Israelites decide they're not going to obey God. They're not going to go into the promised land. They choose to fear what is ahead of them instead of trust in the God that is with them. And God declares judgment on that generation of Israelites. And he says, because you have chosen not to obey. You will wander in the desert for 40 years until this generation has passed. Now, Deuteronomy occurs at the end of that 40 years. And there's a lot of stuff we've left out, obviously. But that's the gist of how we get to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, the 40 years have ended. That generation has passed. And Moses, again, is on the doorstep of the promised land with this massive nation of people ready to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a series of Moses' speeches to the people that are about to enter to the promised land. And so you're gonna hear him as we go through this book, you're gonna hear him recall a lot of what God has done and he's also going to instruct them. He's going to teach them on how they should live. He's going to remind them of the laws that God has already given them, and he's going to prepare their hearts to go into the promised land. And this time they'll actually do it. But we don't get that far in the book of Deuteronomy. Where we start at in chapter one, 
And I'm not going to read chapter 1. That summary I just gave you was in lieu of reading chapter 1 because there's a lot of things that we needed to say before we even got there. But what I want to do from chapter 1 is I want to pull three lessons that we can apply to ourselves today that we can learn from that generation that first came to the promised land and refused to obey. We're going to go back 40 years uh, along with Moses as, as he recounts the events that happened when the people first came to the promised land, and I want to pull three lessons from this. The first one that you'll see on the handout is this. Past provision requires present trust. Past provision requires present trust. One of the lessons that we have to learn, and you understand these things are written down so that we will learn from them. Why, are we, why do we care about the mistakes that the Israelites made thousands of years ago? Because, because we can learn a lot about God and we can learn a lot about ourselves and God wants us to learn from these things. And one of the lessons we need to learn is that past provision requires present trust. Let me read verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. It says, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb. You have stayed at this mountain long enough. Resume your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and their neighbors and the Arabah, the hill country, the Judean foothills, the Negev and the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates River. See, I've set the land before you. Enter and take possession of the land. The Lord swore to give to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their future descendants. So when this, when this initial generation that came out of Egypt is at the, at the doorstep of the promised land, you'll notice that the way God is leading them is different than the way he delivered them out of Egypt. When God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he sent Moses with miraculous signs. Moses did things in order to convince the people. He, God gave him the ability to do miraculous things in order to convince the people that God was with them. But now, when it's time to go into the promised land, God does not provide any miraculous signs. He simply asks them to obey. He asks them to trust that he is going to be with them and to obey his commands to go into the promised land. Just like the Israelites experienced, there's times in our lives, I'm sure you can look back and you can think of times where God was just so convincingly with you. God was so convincingly working in your behalf. There were things that happened that could only be attributed to God's favor, to God's presence, or to God's working in your life. And when that happens, it's almost, not always, it's almost easy to obey. It's easy to trust He's showing up and he's showing off. And so, yeah, I, I, I understand that God is with me. And, and so when the, when the Israelites leave Egypt and they do so in the midst of all of these miraculous things that God is doing, trust comes easy. But there are times when God asks us to trust him just the same and he doesn't provide the same miraculous provision. 
And we need to, in those moments, lean on past provision so that in the present, we will trust him just as if he was doing those same miraculous things today. We need to, all of us ought to have a a log of things that God has done, things that we can lean on, things that we can recall to remembrance that remind us of who God is and remind us of what God has done in the past so that when he calls on us to trust and obey in the future, we're ready. The Israelites had seen God do just incredible things. You would think it would be easy for them. you think it would be easy for them to say, well, we saw what God did with the Egyptians. Here's what's funny about what they're facing now. They're, sta- they're, they're standing on the doorstep of the promised land and ahead of them, yes, there's fortified cities and there's a, there are standing armies. There are people who are ready to confront them. But none of them compare to the Egyptian army. This would have been the most powerful army on the face of the earth. They've already seen God defeat what would have been the most formidable foe that they could have had. And now they, they stand before these, in comparison, kind of pathetic armies, and they get afraid. And they don't trust God. And they refuse to go in. Sounds crazy until you do it. It sounds crazy until it's us. It sounds crazy that they would not trust God in this moment until we ourselves are in the same position where God has once again allowed something difficult to enter in our lives and we have to trust him. And we, we, we have to lean on our remembrance of what he has already done. And what he has already done for us is not limited to what he has done specifically in our lives. This is one of the reasons we have the scriptures is because we, we know that God not only has done things in our brief lives, we know that God for since the beginning of time, for thousands of years, has, has been proving himself faithful and providing for and going with his people. And so as we, one of the things as we read Deuteronomy, we need, to, we need to grow in how much we trust God based on what he did in the past for them. This past provision requires present trust. If God has been faithful in the past, then we must trust him in the present. If God has has proven himself, if God has shown his love in any way in the past, that demands present trust. It's like this in all of our relationships, right? You get to know somebody well, you build a close relationship with them and they prove to be a trustworthy person and then a situation arises where you're really not sure what's going on and you have to decide, am I going to jump to conclusions? Am I going to, am I going to assume the worst here or am I going to give them the benefit of the doubt based 
on our history together, how much more should we extend that same trust to the God who never changes, to the God who never fails, to the God who never leaves his people? Because of what God has done in the past, there really isn't anything that could happen to us that should keep us from trusting him now. God has already extravagantly proved himself. He has shown his love. He has, he has displayed his, his trustworthy nature to us in so many ways. Chief of all of those ways in sending his son to die in our place. Because some of you might be arguing in your minds with me, you're like, I don't know what God's done for me. I can't think of anything. I've, I, my life's a series of things that didn't go right. My life's a series of things where I've wondered, why didn't God help me? Why didn't God come through? And really, we all have this one thing in common in our history, and that is that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, died in our place on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could have eternal life. And if God has done nothing else for you, then that alone is sufficient to demand your trust of him now. That alone is, it makes makes it so that there's, there shouldn't be anything that God allow, allows to come into your life that you don't say, I don't know why this is happening. I don't see how this is going to work out okay. But I know that I have a God who would send his only son to die in my place, and therefore I will trust him in this too. If he loves me that much, then I should, I should trust and I should believe that he's loving me still. And that whatever this is that I'm facing now, he's going to use it for my good and for his glory. Somehow through this, he's loving me. The Israelites looked ahead and they saw armies. And they saw people who were ready to resist and instead of recalling in their mind all of the things that God had done, they acted as if they were like at the first day of this relationship. And all they could see was the challenge that was ahead of them instead of the God that was with them. We need to learn from that. Whatever challenging circumstances you might be facing today, remember who your God is. Remember that he is with you and that he has proven his love. Past provision requires present trust. Number two, you'll see why that's so important as we look at number two together. Number two is not trusting the Lord ultimately leads to rebellion. Not trusting the Lord ultimately leads to rebellion. What's the big deal? Okay, so the Israelites got scared. So they were, why didn't God just comfort them? Why didn't God just remind them? And we don't, we don't, we're not necessarily given every detail of the story. We're given the parts that the Holy Spirit led Moses to, to write down that are relevant, that God wanted us to know. 
But why didn't God just, why didn't God do more miracles? Why didn't God prove that he was with them like he did when he was preparing to bring them out of Egypt? You may not know the answer to that question, but one thing we do know is that their lack of trust ultimately led them to rebellion. Let's listen to the story as Moses tells it. In verse 26, he says, but you were not willing to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us because he hates us. Let's just pause right there. Where did that come from? What happened? How have the Israelites so quickly spiraled down into this negativity? This is one of their favorite lines. The Lord brought us up out of Egypt to let us die in the desert. It's something they would say again and again and again. Do you, do you understand the offense of a nation of people that God has miraculously delivered and miraculously provided for day after day, still coming to the conclusion that God hates them? Again, it's another one of those things that it sounds crazy when we read it until we repeat it. How many times, in spite of everything that God has done, how many times does something difficult happen in our lives and we immediately give up trusting in the Lord and we immediately throw up our hands and say, God must hate me. God must want me to die. I knew he didn't really love me. We begin to question his goodness. We begin question is character. This is rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion changes the story of God's faithfulness into some sick, sadistic plan to punish us. Rebellion begins to, to cast God's faithfulness, to cast doubt on God's faithfulness, and to, to say, he must have brought us out here to kill us. We pick up the story in verse 28. It says, where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart, saying the people are larger and taller than we are. The cities are large, fortified to the heavens. Were they really fortified to the heavens? No. They're exaggerating. Were the people larger and taller? Maybe some of them, but certainly not all of them. We also saw the descendants of Anakim there. So I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. Moses, the voice of reason, says, don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, will fight for you. Just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. Moses is like, guys, we've been here before. Remember when Pharaoh and the Egyptian army was pursuing us in the desert and we were stuck between his army and the Red Sea and God delivered us? And you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went before you on the journey to seek out a place for you to camp. He went in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to guide you on the road you were to travel. The reality is that every second of every day 
of their lives, God has been working to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them, to lead them. Moses, Moses says, the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. All along the way you traveled, in spite of this, you did not trust your God. He went before you to seek out a place for you to camp. He led you by fire at night and, and by clouds in the day. This God has been with you every single moment of your life. And you rebelled. That's where not trusting takes you. Ultimately, that's where you end up. When you begin to not trust God, when you begin to question his goodness, his faithfulness, his character, his power, whatever, when you begin to question and you begin to doubt, then it ultimately leads you to rebellion. If you don't trust him, you won't do what he says. For us, it's not going and taking a land. It's not going to war. For us, it's, living out our faith in our daily lives. When we're tempted to sin, it's really a matter of trust. Temptation needs to be defeated with trust. Trust says, if I withstand this temptation, then the, the goodness that I receive from God as a result of standing against temptation is better than what I will, the, the, the pleasure the momentary pleasure that I will receive from giving in to this temptation. That's a trust issue. You have to trust him. You have to take him at his word. You have to believe him. If you don't trust, you will rebel. And rebellion is really the ultimate offense against God. Think about the words that they said. The Lord the two different perspectives. Here's Moses. He's like, God loves you so much that he delivered you from the most powerful nation on earth, that he's been with you day after day. He's been miraculously providing for you. He's been leading you. He's brought you to this place to give you something great. He wants you to inhabit the promised land. He wants you to grow and to be his people. He wants to lavish his love on you. That's Moses' perspective. What's their perspective? God brought us out here to kill us because he hates us. How offensive that is to God. The God who had been carrying them like a man carries his son. The God who had been with them every moment. Not trusting the Lord ultimately leads to rebellion. Number three, once you find your place, find yourself in this place where you've failed to trust and you've, you've followed that through to rebellion, there's another lesson that we need to take heed of, and that is that attempting to make up for your sins in your own way is just another act of rebellion. Attempting to make up for your sins in your own way is just another act of rebellion. Okay, so the Israelites, they didn't trust God. That led them to rebellion. 
So what are they going to do? Are they going to repent? And are they going to say, okay, God, what do you want us to do? How do we get back into right relationship with you? You tell us and we will obey this time. Is that what they're going to do? Let's read the story. Verse 34 says, when the Lord heard your words, he grew angry and swore an oath. None of these men in this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he will see it and he will give him and his descendants the land on which he has set foot because he remained loyal to the Lord. And you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. So the people have come to their senses. They hear that because they have failed to go in, now God has has declared that they will die in the wilderness and they suddenly think, well, that sounds worse than going up at least having a chance of fighting for the promised land. We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. Then each of you put on his weapons of war and thought it would be easy to go up into the hill country. Verse 42, but the Lord said to me, tell them, don't go up and fight. For I am not with you to keep you from being defeated by your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you didn't listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and defiantly went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived there came out against you and chased you like a swarm of bees. They routed you from Seir as far as Hormah. When you returned, you wept before the Lord, but he didn't listen to your request or pay attention to you. For this reason, you stayed in Kadesh as long as you did. Their solution to their rebellion was rebellion. But you have to pay attention to the story to understand how easily we could fall into the same pattern or into the same trap. What they did, had they done it earlier, would have been the right thing to do. To them, it must have made sense. If not going up and fighting is what got us in trouble, then let's go up and fight. But again, it wasn't about going up and fighting. It was about obeying the Lord. It was about doing what he commanded them to do. That is an issue of trust. They're still not learning what they need to learn. It's not so much about what they do, it's about whether or not they trust. So they go up, and they get their butts whooped. They lose the battle that, had they gone up the first time, they would have won. Because this time, God was not with them. Here's the parallel in our own lives. We come to our senses, realize we've sinned against the Lord, and then we come up with our own ways of atoning for that sin. We come up with our own ways of making up for that sin. Sometimes it's outward religious behavior. We think, yeah, I'm going to go to church because I've been a bad person. I'm going to give a little bit of money in the offering because I've been a really bad person. <laughs> or, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign up to serve as a way of making up. For, you, know, you know what I mean? Like we... we Whatever it is, we, we come up with our own way of making ourselves right with God. And just like going up and fighting wasn't a bad thing, it was originally what God wanted them to do. Those things I just mentioned aren't bad things when they're done for the right reasons. 
But when we, when we establish any behavior as a way of making ourselves right before God, we've missed the whole point of the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that God does not, he doesn't need our good deeds. He doesn't need, he doesn't, he doesn't need us to make up for our sin. He needs us to trust him. And he has already made provision for atonement of our sins. He has already provided a way for us to be forgiven. And when we, and when we reject obedience to what God has already provided for us, when we say, yeah, I understand Jesus died for my sins, but you know what, I'm, I think I can fix this myself. I think I can make up for my sins. I think I can do enough good things. I'm going to like really be good. That's offensive to God. In fact, God said through Isaiah that even our righteous deeds, when they're not done in faith, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. Attempting to make yourself right with God in any way other than by throwing yourself on the cross of Jesus, by, by, by completely and wholly trusting in what he has done on your behalf, any other way that you attempt to get yourself right for God is just more sin. It's just more rebellion. You're still not listening. He's saying this is what I command you. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. And until we surrender to that, until we surrender to the way that God has already prescribed for us to come to him, we're still in disobedience. We're still in rebellion. It might look like the right thing to do, I mean, these guys, the Israelites, they had themselves all convinced. They had themselves all worked up. We're going to show God how sorry we really are. We're going to show him how capable of obeying him we really are. And Moses is like, guys, don't go. God's not going with you. And they go up and they get routed. They get destroyed. And they spend the next 40 years wandering in the desert until every single man of that generation, except for Caleb, has died off. And now Moses is back to the, the, the doorstep of the promised land a second time. And this time he's got a whole new generation of people. And that generation, all, this, this new generation, all they've known is the wilderness. All they've known is, is being stuck out in the desert watching their parents die off one by one. Man, it would have been rough to be that last guy still hanging on. Everybody's staring at you like, would you hurry up and die? We're trying to get into the promised land. What about you? Has God's provision in your life? And let me just emphasize this again. Regardless of what your life has looked like, in terms of 
God bringing you through the things that you've gone through and all that, there is no greater provision than him sending his son, his only son, his holy son, to die in your place. Has God's past provision led you to present trust? Are you willing to trust him with whatever he brings into your life next? I mean, we're all hoping that's good things. We're all hoping that we're going to be healthy and that our jobs are going to go well and that we're going to financially do what, I mean, we're all hoping for good things, right? But what about when the bad things come? What about when the job's not going so well? What about when the health reports aren't so good? Hasn't he done enough to warrant your trust today? Are you trusting him? If you're not, take heed because that lack of trust will eventually lead to rebellion. And then finally, have you attempted to make yourself right with God in your own way? Have you, have you rejected his prescribed plan of salvation, which is to put your faith and your tr- and trust wholly in what Jesus has done on, on the cross for you? to receive his grace, to receive his forgiveness. Have you gone around that or, or, or tried to come up with your own way of getting back to him? I want to invite you back. Don't, do, don't go up and fight this time. Trust him. Believe him. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we begin to look at the book of Deuteronomy, this is a book about trust. It's a book that calls us to love and to obey. It's a book that's going to show us again and again what a good and faithful God you are and call us to respond with obedience and call us to respond with trust. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts over these next few weeks that would cause us to grow in our obedience to you that would cause us to grow in our love for you and our love for those around us. But today I specifically just want to pray for those who are they're facing an obstacle to trust right now because of circumstances in their lives. They're just making them question your goodness, or your kindness, or your sufficiency. might be something that's happening to them or it might be something that's happening to somebody that they love. May we not make the same mistakes that those Israelites made. May we trust. May we lean on your goodness. May we walk not not by sight but by faith. Believing in your love and your kindness. And Father, for any of us who have made a habit out of trying to make ourselves right with you in our own way. But today we may feel convicted to to stop going up and fight and to just lay our sword down and trust and to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Jesus, would you come into our hearts and into our lives, cause us to be born again and take away our sin and grant us eternal life. We ask in Jesus' name.